The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And a Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, well, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing, acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be back with you this week. Last weekend, Alyssa and I were at a conference for East West Ministries, which is a missions organization focused on unreached people groups. And there we met a pastor from Scotland, a man named Neil McMillan. He's been a church planter and pastor for over 30 years in Scotland, his home country. And while there, he's seen and experienced a cultural shift that's very similar to so many of the social changes that we're seeing and experiencing now in our country. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about a Pew Research study newly released that speaks about the decline of Christianity in America, that 48% of Generation Z, so X and then millennials and then Z, Uh, 48% of them claim now to be nuns, N-O-N-E-S, meaning they affiliate with no religious organization or, or belief. In the last 60 years in Scotland, however, the total population of Christians and membership in the Church of Scotland has decreased from 1.3 million to just 300,000, which is a precipitous decline. In Aberdeen, which used to be one of the most Christianized cities in the country, 95 churches for 180,000 people. Um, It now is the most secular city in Scotland, and Scotland is the most secular city in the UK. And many of those church buildings are no longer churches. They've been sold out to condos and to restaurants and to bars with a name like Soul, which is an actual restaurant. So go to their website. You'll read this. Seven days a week, day or night, Soul really has all the right ingredients to give you a true sense of being from a bar. Anyways, housed in a stunning church conversion, Soul offers drinks, cocktails, casual dining in a chic space with opulent stained glass and dimmed mood lighting. 
And also the organ is still there. I was a part of the decor. And these churches, Neil told me, won't sell out or to give their property to his churches because in doing that, it would in part confirm why it is that their churches died. And so they sell out to developers. But Neil's church is thriving, as are many of his plants across Scotland. They're smaller, they're poorer, they have far less cultural clout and influence, but they're vibrant. They have a spiritual vitality that Scotland hasn't known in the church for decades. And Neil himself has a very distinct and calm confidence about himself, about who he is as a Christian, about his calling as a pastor, about his church and his church plants, and especially about who God is as revealed in and through the person of Jesus. It's palpably strong. And as I talked to him, I couldn't help but thinking there's a correlation here between his calm confidence about who God is and who he is in Christ and this increasingly secular world in which he lives and he ministers. And it gave me hope for us that even as Christian numbers decline in the United States, our confidence in who God is and our relationship with him, it can grow. And we're ending our fall sermon series on 1 John today, which is a letter written to a church who had seen many members leave. Many members deny the faith and to walk away. And John has been offering this church reasons to stay, reasons to remain a Christian. And he ends his letter with confidence, epistemological confidence, which I know is a big word at the beginning of the sermon, but it simply means in knowing who God is. And so I wonder if you need that this morning. I know that I do. And so two points this morning, the sources of confidence. Number two, the reality of change. First of all, the sources of confidence. At the end of his letter here, John's very clear about why he's writing. In verse 13, we read, I write these things, everything I've written, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, meaning those of you who still believe and are still there, that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, that you might know that the gospel is true. Everything you've been taught about Jesus, he's God in the flesh, come in the flesh in human form to die for sins, to be raised in order to restore a new, right, intimate, personal relationship with God, a relationship that begins now and gives life but continues on into the world to come, that all of it's true. And six times, you might've caught this as Teresa read, six different times in this passage, we find the phrase, we know. Over and over again, we know. And he makes a distinction here between believing and knowing. It's similar, but it's different for him. It's, it's It's correlated, but he wants those who already believe to know, meaning he wants them to be confident and assured in their belief. That's why we find the word confidence there in verse 14. John uses it, I think, in part because we all know what it's like to believe in something without confidence. And so I wonder this morning for you, what it is that you're confident in right now? What do you have confidence in? In what relationship do you have confidence right now? You confident in the stock market? You confident in our political system or maybe in your political party? You confident in your boss, your CEO, the company that you work for, your principal, the superintendent, the administration of your children's school and your college football team? Too soon, too soon. (laughs) But seriously, like in your marriage, are you confident in your marriage? You confident about your commitment to your spouse, to your spouse's commitment to you? Confident about your children, children's well-being, their spiritual wellness? And their emotional health? Are you confident about your own morality, what you believe to be true, your moral strength, live out what you believe to be true? So in what do you not only believe, but are confident? This word that's translated confident here in verse 14, it's an important word. Literally, it's all speech in Greek, all speech, or we could translate it every word. 
And what he means by it is that it's something that you speak about freely, something that you have lots to say. You're ready and willing to speak all the words about it because you're so captivated and confident by it. And you have something that is like that for you. So what is it? What is it that you don't just believe in, in some sort of limply, indifferent, listlessly sort of fashion, but confidently and passionately? Because John wants it to be God. He's saying Christian confidence that God is real is possible. And here are some of its sources. The source we find here in verse 14 through 16 is confidence in knowing God that comes through prayer and specifically in seeing that our prayers are answered and, and prayers for Christians who've fallen into sin, who've been overwhelmed by some suffering, some brokenness and seeing our prayers for them answered once they're restored to, to God and to, to us. That's what he talks about in verse 16, where he talks about a sin not leading to death. And you notice he doesn't specify the sin. It could be anything, which is helpful for us. So insert and apply it to whatever it is that you're dealing with for yourself, for loved ones, for others. Could be adultery, could be addiction, arrogance, pride, selfishness, laziness, fear of man, prejudice, greed, whatever it may be, whatever you're experiencing. This is what he's talking about, a sin not leading to death. And John says that through your prayers, the Lord will deliver other Christians from this sin and from that brokenness through your prayers. Now let that sink in. Through your prayers, they'll be delivered and restored. Now, of course, if we were to see that, if we were to experience that, of course, our confidence in who God is and in the, in what we believe to be true and right and good, then yes, it would increase. But all too often, we don't experience that. And why? Because we do not pray. And we, we do not have because we do not ask. All too often, we don't go to others. We find other Christians struggling in, in whatever it may be, in some sort of sin, loss, brokenness. We don't go to them. We don't go to God for them. We'll talk about them, but, but we won't go to God for them, almost as though we're embarrassed by them or we're exhausted by them. Even so much, if we just kind of see them slowly wandering away, there's a relief there because them being around us makes us look bad or it wears us out. But John says, pray. And in verse 16, he promises that God will give them life through your prayers, and then in turn, give you confidence in him and in your relationship with him. That's a sin that not, doesn't lead to death, but there is a sin that leads to death. And it's something I got to talk about just for a second. In verse 16, John doesn't direct them or us to pray for those who are embroiled in this, whatever it is. So what is it? And what does he mean by it? a sin that does lead to death? He's talking about spiritual death here specifically. And he seems to have in mind this former group of church members who've left the church, who've denied Christ and walked away from the faith. And what he is saying is that the scriptures nowhere give any concrete promises that they will be restored. There's a distinction, in other words, between Christians who are struggling with sin, doubt, disobedience, and former Christians who have walked away. And John is saying, I'm not going to encourage you to pray for them. He's not saying don't pray for them. He's just saying there's no biblical promise that those who leave will be able to come back. There's no promise for that, which is a sobering statement. Something along the lines of what I mentioned at the end of my sermon a couple of weeks ago when I read to you about Zach Bryan's song. Many of you were here. Some of you weren't. Many of you weren't. It was Texas OU weekend and ACL and fall break, which in Austin is kind of the trifecta for low church attendance. But, but he, he has this song called Revival. 
And it's a, it's a profound song. He's an amazing songwriter. And this is what he sings. He sings, we're having an all-night revival. Someone call the women. Someone steal the Bibles. For the sake of my survival, baptize me in a bottle of beam and put Johnny on the vinyl. Well, the devil can scrap, but the Lord has one. And I'll talk to him on the rising sun. His son rose and minded to, I was coming down. I was getting out, but now I'm talking to you. So I'm going to stay because we're having an all night revival. It's a profound song. He's a great songwriter and it's evident. I don't know if he's still a Christian. It's evident that he's been in or around Christianity and that he understands it to some degree, but this assumption of this song is deadly because it assumes that we can chase certain things. And we can indulge in, in certain immediate longings or cravings, thinking that they'll satisfy us now. And this is what I need right now. This is what I need for my survival. But on the rising sun, I'll just talk to God and it'll be okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be fine. Jesus has already defeated the devil so I can flirt and fiddle with the devil's world. I can walk in and out of these world back and forth without any harm. That I have the agency and I have the power to do that. To leave, to come back, to leave, to come back. And John says, no. You don't understand or appreciate the powers and spiritual realities that you're dealing with. He says, all wrongdoing is sin. Absolutely true. But there are different depths and different degrees of sin and therefore different consequences. So we must not be naive. We must not be cavalier with our relationship with the Lord, with our relationship to other things. And we need to hold on to others in prayer. And as we do, God will work. Amazing. As we do, God will work and we will see it. And our confidence about who he is and our relationship to him will grow because life change leads to spiritual confidence, which leads me to point to the reality of change. Reality of change is so important to this confidence that John speaks about here. And let me give you a, a short list of some other sources of confidence in knowing God, because John, for them, it's, it's multifaceted for John. He weaves them throughout his entire letter. In chapter five, verses nine through 13, I preached on a couple of weeks ago. Also in chapter three, John speaks about this confidence that comes as God's testimony about Jesus is confirmed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit working within us. It's this inexplicable internal confidence. And we see it in our gospel reading with the woman at the well. It's one of the reasons I chose that gospel reading for us. Because at the very end, she says, after talking to Jesus, this man told me everything I did. In other words, this man and talking about himself and and talking to me, he explained everything in my life. My life began to make sense after having heard from him. And so her curiosity about him is growing. And even her confidence in who he says he is, it's growing as well. It's a means by which confidence can grow. And some of you are right there this morning. Some of you have been there. You're not yet a Christian, but you're here with friends. You're here with family. You've been worshiping with us for a while. And and this is happening to you. You are this woman right now, this morning. It's a source of confidence. But so too is when you begin to love others, especially other Christians, according to John, and serve them and care for them in ways that you never have before. And this is the major theme for John. Maybe the very heart of the letter. It comes in chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. It's at the very center of the letter, literally, but also figuratively. And what it is, is loving action. I've preached on it multiple times. It comes up so many times. Love action as action, not love as emotion. And especially with others that you would never engage with or deal with otherwise, because they're so very different from you. And we see that also in our gospel reading, because here Jesus goes to a woman who is utterly like, unlike him in every way. And it's scandalous. It's shocking to the disciples. He can't, they can't believe that he's talking to her because number one, she's a woman and men in that 
age, that, that culture, they didn't talk to women unless those women were a part of their family. She's not just any woman, she's an immoral woman. She can't go to the well with the other women of the village in the morning or in the evening when it's cooler. She has to go in the very heart of the day, in the heat of the day, because they won't have anything to do with her. They're so ashamed of her and they ridiculed and rejected her. An immoral woman, but also she's not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. In, in Jewish eyes, she would be a heretic, some sort of religious mutt that's, that's joined paganism and Judaism in weird sort of ways, so culturally different than Jesus, ethnically different, a, a different religion, different religiously. In every way, she is different from Jesus, but Jesus loves her. He goes to her. He speaks to her. He serves her, and he helps her. And friends, we don't even listen to people who are different than us in our society. We don't even listen to people who are different. We're so tribalized culturally and religiously and politically, ethnically. We won't even listen. Not Jesus. Those divides and those barriers that our culture always erects are blown away by his loving action here. And John insists throughout his letter that the way in which we see Jesus, who he is, the church also in him will be like him. And when you find yourself willingly and readily and actively engaged in loving action with someone who's nothing like you in any way, your confidence will grow that you truly do know who Jesus is and that he knows you and you're in a relationship with him. One last major source of confidence for John is very simply obedience to God, willing obedience, not obligatory obedience, not burdensome obedience. The beginning of chapter five a couple of weeks ago, I preached on this, and we find there John saying, God's commandments are not burdensome. And I asked you two weeks ago, do you believe that? Do you believe that God's commandments are not burdensome? And this week, I wonder, are you experiencing that? Are you experiencing that they're not burdensome? Several years ago, I told you a story about St. Augustine. It was probably an apocryphal story. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but it's a really good story and preachers have used it for centuries and centuries. But you may know that St. Augustine was something of a sex addict before becoming a Christian. And he had this radical kind of dramatic conversion, which he recounts in his book, The Confessions, probably his most famous work. And after his conversion, he was walking in a city down the street near one of his former, where his former mistresses lived. And this, this one particular lady sees him and she rushes out to him. And, and she, she greets him and he greets her kindly, but then he just walks on and she's shocked. And so she cries out to him in the middle of the street, but Augustine, it is I. In other words, it's me. Don't you, don't you, don't you recognize me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what we had? It is I. And then Augustine turns to her and says, I know, but it is not I because he'd been changed. He was different. The commandments of God were no longer burdensome to him or even obligatory, but they had become beautiful and desirable to him, even more so than one of his previously cherished mistresses. And if and when that happens to you, your confidence that you know God will grow. It will grow. And notice that all of these sources of confidence, all that I've mentioned, your prayers being answered, uh, the gospel beginning to make sense of your life, being that means by which you interpret and understand everything about your life, loving others who are not like you and willingly and joyfully even obeying God, they are all predicated upon change. They're predicated upon God doing something observable and objective in and through you in the outside world. In other words, it's not based upon how you feel from one moment to the next or one situation to the next. As important as emotions are for John and for all the New Testament, they are not the ground of Christian confidence. 
They're, they're not the ground of Christian confidence for us that our faith is real and that the gospel is true. And that has to be said because we are awash in our emotions in the modern world. Our individual subjective emotions rule over everything and it's killing us. It's killing us emotionally. It's killing us relationally. It's killing us mentally. We don't know which way is up in part because we're awash in our emotions. That's one of Carl Truman's main points in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Are you tired of me mentioning this book at this point? I promise this will be the last time. Maybe. I'll probably mention it again. But he writes in this book, and one of his main points is that we live in a therapeutic culture and we're overly psychologized people. He says the only moral criterion that can be applied to behavior today is whether it aids feelings of well-being and happiness in the individuals concerned. Ethics have become a function of feeling. He's saying how we feel in the moment determines what we believe to be right. If, if we feel a certain way about it, then it has to be true. Then it has to be right. In other words, ethics have become a function of feeling for us. So too our confidence with God. If we feel that the gospel is true, if we feel like God exists, if we feel that he is who he says he is, then we believe it. But if not, moment to moment, situation to situation, then maybe not. And it's not so for John. The very opposite is true. One commentator said this. He said, and listen, this is so important. He says, for John, the grounds of assurance are ethical, not emotional, objective, not subjective, plain and tangible, not microscopic and elusive. He says there are three, belief, obedience, love. Belief, obedience, love. By belief in Christ, keeping God's commandments and his love for other Christian, a Christian man, a Christian woman is recognized and recognizes himself or herself as newly born of God. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, look at your life. Look at your life. You are different. You have been changed. And the change is obvious. It's objective. It's evident in the outside world to others. Others see it. So let that change lead you and assure you and give you the confidence with God that he's real, that his word is true, and that what we, what we believe and what we've been taught is true. It's so counterintuitive. It's so difficult to us because it's so counterintuitive for us. For so many Christians, I know for so many of you, the uniqueness and even the strangeness of the Christian life, that's what give you, gives you doubts about its truthfulness. It's because it's so strange and different, and then, therefore you're so strange and different, then you believe, well, maybe it's not true. And for John, it's flipped. It's the exact opposite. For him, the strangeness and the uniqueness of our faith, coupled with our capacity to believe and to live differently, that's what gives him confidence that it's true. So he says, look, look at your life. Look at your relationships. Look at the church. Look how different you are, that you've been changed. Let that give you confidence about our faith. And the change is most maybe most arguably obvious and stark in regards to our sexual lives and the difference there. There's a new gay rom-com film called Bros. Have you heard of it? You've seen it? I've seen it. I've read some things about it. It's gotten lots of press lately and it's failed at the box office. And so the director and lead actor have recently come out saying that the reason that it's failed is because of homophobic people refusing to go and see it. And Carl Truman I've already mentioned, he offered another reason for it in an article in First Things last week. And he argued that the film didn't fail because it was a gay romantic comedy. He argues that it failed because it was a romantic comedy. Because the romantic comedy genre is dying in our culture. And it's dying in our culture because romance is dead in our culture. 
He says this. He says the very idea of sex as a lifestyle rather than as a seal on a unique relationship, the establishment of which takes time, effort, self-sacrifice, seems to preclude any notion of romance. Romance depends upon sex being costly. It was the difficulty of obtaining sex, the need for that delicate, complicated, and unpredictable interpersonal dance between two people that was the very essence of what it was to be romantic. But in a world where sex is not simply casual, but remarkably cheap, the notion of romance is dead. Romance requires a particular kind of culture in order to make sense. A world of hookups, one night stands, and all pervasive pornography is not one that gives people the cultural grammar and syntax to understand or to desire romance. You hear what he's saying? Romance and cheap sex, they cannot coexist, and so it's dead. And it's a brilliant point, and I think true, but I doubt that the secular world will agree because it's so strange of a way to think. It's so unique and different and strange of a way to think that it's next to impossible without our scriptures and gospel's guidance. The point is you are strange if you are a Christian and you are different because you have been changed. And our sexual lives are just one aspect of what Jesus came to redeem and to change. When Jesus came to the woman at the well, he wasn't just seeking to redeem and to change her sexual life but every aspect of her life. He, he begins with her relationships with men because that was the starting point because that was primarily what was drawing her away from God. That was what it was for her. It could have been something else. It would have been something else for somebody different, but for her, that's what it was because it was her idol. And John ends his letter talking about idols. And this is where I end. An idol, very simply, is a counterfeit God. It's what Jeremiah speaks about in our Old Testament reading. It's anything so central, so essential to your life that if you lose it, then your life would hardly feel like living anymore. And it controls you. It controls everything. It controls your heart, controls your emotions, your finances, your time. It, it controls everything. And it can be anything, anything good, family, children. It can be work, it can be money, comfort, ease. It can be an ideology, a political platform. It can be some sort of activist cause. It can be romance. It can be sex. It can be anything. But whatever it is, it's what you believe makes sense of your life. It's the filter, the framework by which you understand your life. And it's what you obey and it's what you love. And when it fails and it will fail and you know, it will fail. It's already failed. So many of it's failed us all at some point, whatever it may be, whatever it is, your confidence won't be simply replaced with something else. It will be placed with placed with sorrow and then even despair. And there is a difference. Tim Keller says this. He says, sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing your ultimate thing. When you lose your ultimate thing, it breaks you. And so many in our society are teetering not only on sorrow, but upon despair because their confidence in who they are and what is true, right, and good is gone. It's completely gone and they're angry, but their anger, the anger of our age is simply a disguise for despair. And Jesus came to end despair and to restore confidence. The book of Isaiah says he was a man of sorrow, not of despair, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief and like one from whom we hide our face, one we're ashamed of. And here in our gospel reading, he comes to an ashamed person. He comes to this woman who is utterly and completely ashamed, and he becomes the ashamed person for her. 
to, to step into her place, to be her savior, to be her substitute, and to bear all of her burdens, to forgive her of all of her sins in and through the cross, and to lift all of her burdens off her, to bear them herself so that she might be forgiven of all things, but also that her life might be changed in every aspect of her life, and to end and to defeat any idol's influence upon her, and to give her the confidence in the grace and the power and the goodness of God to her, to her, and to you, whomever you may be. And friends, we have so much reason for confidence about what we believe who God is and all that he's done for us, because he's doing so much in our midst. So much in our midst here. I've seen your lives changed. I've been here long enough to see so many of your lives changed, to see so many of your relationships changed, to see marriages restored, to, be, to see families brought back together, to see so many bears that the world erects torn down and brought down. How many places across Austin, Texas have this many demographics, this many people of different ages and stages of life coming together, people with very little in common other than the fact that they believe Jesus to be the Christ. And we're here week in, week out, barriers that are often erected being torn down here. Not only age and stage of life, but ethnic socioeconomic barriers being torn down and destroyed. And people not simply remaining Christians, but people becoming Christians here. We're having to add days for baptisms at All Saints. And praise God, because people are coming to faith, they're not just remaining Christians, but they're becoming Christians. Not just children being baptized, but adults being baptized. So don't just keep yourself from idols. Give yourself to the true and eternal God, to Jesus, who has come to you and who has come for you. Believe in him, follow, obey him, love others in his name, and you will know, you will know that you have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us the grace necessary to believe your word to be true that we might not simply believe, but that we might know, that we might be assured of that which we have been taught, that which we have come to know is true. So Father, thank you for our church. Bless and keep us in Christ. Continue to use us for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.